Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts literally to the renowned horror director writer and producer now here's your host mick garris I'm Mick Garris, and this is the Postmortem Podcast. I'm a bit at a loss for words. The sense of loss is almost overwhelming. Just as we were finishing up putting together our tribute show to salute Wes Craven two years after his death, I got the shocking and completely unexpected news that my friend Toby Hooper had died. Toby was a friend, a really good friend, and we had just set a date for him to come in and be on this very podcast. Toby could be hard to reach sometimes, a bit of a hermit who could disappear for months at a time, then return a call as if no time at all had passed. That gruff Texas Jimmy Stewart drawl could only belong to one person, and I lit up every time I heard his voice. Toby and I had crossed paths so many times in work and play that to know that it's never going to happen again just breaks my heart. We first met on the set of Poltergeist, where I was working as a publicist, and we became friends right there. We worked together or next to one another on Amazing Stories, Freddy's Nightmares, Tales from the Crypt, Masters of Horror, and so many other times, including on projects that never saw the light of day. It's been a tough time for horror icons. Wes Craven, George Romero, and Toby Hooper are three of the horror Mount Rushmore masters who changed the course of modern horror. They made movies that created their own cinematic vocabularies. Hell, they made many of us into horror fans in the first place. All of them had a lot more to say than just making you jump. These were the guys who paved the way for all that was to follow, and we're here to pay tribute, to help me celebrate the life and career of Toby Hooper, to try to bring out the joy of his life and work, rather than just the sorrow of his death. Caroline Williams and Bill Mosley, the stars of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, and so many other memorable films are here in the studio, and we'll raise a Dr. Pepper toast to his memory after this. This is Postmortem with Mick Garris. Well, you guys worked intimately with Toby. Tell me, Caroline, let's start with you, your first impression the first time you met Toby. Um, the first time I met him was when I blasted into the audition room. I had never met him before. And um, it's that very well-known audition story where I ran screaming down the hallway of the office and I, I had told the casting person I'm going to walk in working so they need to be ready. Um, I crashed through the door. I pulled the chairs right out from under the two of them. I piled them in front of the office door and I backed into the corner. They live on fear. They live on fear. So the very first time that I met Toby, he was looking at me as 
the character. He wasn't looking at me as an actress. He was seeing Stretch. Yeah, I, I yeah, because I got hired. And he and Kit just... Uh, right, Kit Carson was the other person in the room. Exactly. Yep. So, Bill, you're, you came in, uh, you sent in a videotape audition. Um, it wasn't even an audition. It was, um, <laughs> I, I had done, I had been so freaked out by the original Chainsaw that I had, as part of my way of exercising the, uh, the, the, the terror that really struck me so deep, I ended up making a short film called The Texas Chainsaw Manicure. <laughs> Uh, about a woman who goes to a beauty parlor, gets her hair done, sits under the dryer, wants a manicure. Beautician calls to the back of the beauty parlor, manicure. And all of a sudden you hear the saw start up and out comes Leatherface from the sliding steel door and saws her fingers. Um, and uh, when she she screams and faints and when she comes to, uh, she looks down and she has a fabulous manicure. Oh. <laughs> and so she goes out to... Show her a husband play. I was doing the, my uh, my hitchhiker impression uh, behind the wheel of our pickup truck, and when she comes out, she goes, "Look, honey, I got the best manicure ever." And I go, "Hey, that's great, honey. We should celebrate with some head cheese." <laughs> and it was real head cheese. Yeah. Mm. And uh, and a friend of mine who was a screenwriter in Hollywood, to whom I had showed the manicures about five minute videotape, uh, walked in. His name was uh, Peter S. Seaman. Believe it or not. And mm. uh, he was uh, partnered with George Price. They they wrote Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, wow. That's Seaman and Price. Yes. Yeah, Seaman okay. and Price. And uh, so my buddy uh, Pete uh, you know, asked me if I could have a uh, if he could have a copy of the manicure. He walked it across the hall at Paramount during the poltergeist days and showed it to Toby and Toby loved it. You know, I was, I was given his number to call and, uh, you know, I've since realized what a miracle it was that he answered the phone yes. about a week <laughs> later and, uh, and, uh, said, uh, yeah, I love the manicure bill. Now, who was the, who was the one that played the hitchhiker? Uh-huh. I said, well, that was me, Toby. And he said, well, if I ever do a sequel, I'll keep you in mind. And two years later, um, through a series of calls, uh, I ended up getting hired. I, I never auditioned. Wow. So the first time you met him was on the set, and you were in chop-top makeup. Yeah. And what was, what were your mutual impressions? Well, I don't know what he thought of me, but, you know, he he walked in. He uh, Tom Savini was just fin- finishing the chop-top makeup. I was in the makeup chair. Toby walked in with his cigar and a box of cigars for Tom Savini and uh, Dr. Pepper. And uh, Tom said, uh, well, this is Chop Top, Toby. And Toby goes, huh? And, uh, and Tom, <laughs> he's looking me over. And, uh, and uh, Tom says, well, what do you think? And, and Toby looks at, the, at my head plate. And he goes, uh, yeah, I think a little more pus on the plate. <laughs> and Tom goes, amber or clear? And Toby goes, amber. <laughs> and then walks off. And I was thinking, this is going to be a hell of a ride. <laughs> There's a guy with a vision. <laughs> that guy knows what he's talking about. And you know what's amazing about something like that? The very fact that he so, with such faith, invested us immediately. There were no rounds of, you know, committee meetings with people. He didn't have to go to Canon Films and say, can I get your permission? It wasn't that way. It was done. The thing was done. There are people who say this is the Tobiest of Toby Hooper movies, and I kind of agree with that. It seems like Toby Hooper Unchained. 
it seems like he was freely he his mind was set free on this movie and i think the immediacy of the production that it went into production so quickly and without a lot of preparation time and even the post production <laughs> or it, script or <laughs> script and and this is a script by kit carson who had written paris texas you know right. he was not a horror guy at all but right? he was funny as hell and the, and it's so well reflected there so you went in you'd obviously seen the original texas chainsaw massacre i'd seen portions of of it. It was a little too cinema verite for me. The, the really strange thing is I had seen it Texas OU weekend when I had gone to Austin to see the football game. Ah. I was in high school. Wow. And I walk into a party where somebody had gotten a bootleg copy. They're projecting it on a sheet uh, <laughs> hanging on the wall of this apartment building where we're having our little blowout party, which you see in the movie yeah. later on. And I walk in just as Pam is going on the hook. <laughs> and <laughs> That's a great moment in cinema was, history. And, you know, it was also one of the same, it was the same night that I saw Elephant Parts by Mike Michael Nesmith, Nesmith yeah. at the Armadillo World Headquarters. Oh. So it was one of those... You know, there was just this convergence of creative impulses that were happening that night. So, yeah, it was pretty impressive. Well, well let's, let's, let's not forget the last days of the Alamo by Eagle Pinnell, right? Oh, my God. And well, <laughs> yeah. exactly that. Eagle was flying high at that time with Lou Perriman. Um, they did two pictures together, uh, the whole shooting match and uh, last night at the Alamo. And they're two classic films of Texas independent cinema mm -hmm. and their references that Robert Redford makes today when he talks about his inspiration for the Sundance Institute. And Eagle was in Chainsaw 2. Where? He's in the... The in, yuppie scene? No, no, no. The uh, the uh, chili cook-off. Oh, really? When the camera pans down a line of people, there's Eagle. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh -huh. I have to say there's also a remarkable documentary about Eagle Pinnell and the beginning of Texas cinema. Jeff Burr sent it to me. Uh -huh. There is a link. I can send it to you, Mick, and you mm -hmm. can put it up wherever you need to because I think it's valuable to know the many inspirations in Texas at the time. Because they all knew each other. All these filmmakers knew each other. A lot of people don't know Lou Perriman was cameraman on the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre, on right. the original film. Right. And yeah. then he wound up acting opposite us in number two. Wow. Yeah. So what were your expectations? You went in prepared as Stretch. You, you certainly had seen parts of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and certainly knew it from part of your Texas lore. So what were your expectations of Toby Hooper and how were they confirmed or otherwise waylaid? I didn't know enough about his cinema history, nor about his relationship with Canon Films, mm -hmm. which was notoriously warlike. <laughs> and I can see a lot of that anger coming through in the storyline uh, for Chainsaw 2. And I think it's part of the reason he was so unleashed. I mean, the stinger at the end of the film is a big f*** you <laughs> to Canon Films. And I think in his mind, I'm going to do whatever the hell I want in this movie. I'm going to create the characters that I want. I'm going to go where I want. I'm going to ride Dennis Hopper like a <laughs> Brahma bull at a goddamn rodeo. And I'm going to have the time of my life. And that's exactly what happened. And I think there was also a strange thing that he was... Uh, editing Invaders from Mars at the time that he was doing this. So the guy was on a 20-hour loop mm. every single day. My expectations were a little bit practical. I didn't start acting when I was a kid. 
I was a little bit green to it, but I knew that the name Toby Hooper with this sequel would bring people into the theaters. And I knew what an opportunity it represented for me as an actress in Texas. So that's where that was. And how about you, Bill? What was your first experience when you were in your makeup? Um, Toby had this. Uh, did you have anticipation of what this guy who created one of the most brutal and, and shocking films in cinema history, what was your anticipation of this guy? I was completely up for it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, hap what happened to me was once I got hired through this very back room uh, circuitous route, um, I went down to Austin uh, pre-production, and Tom Savini uh, shaved my head, mm -hmm. and uh, that was so traumatic. I mean, I suddenly was completely bald, and uh, you know, for some reason, that that really knocked knocked me for a loop. I came back, and I was just uh, I was overwhelmed. I had I had acted in one movie. I think I had I had uh, I got my SAG card through Endangered Species oh, by yes. Alan Rudolph. Yeah, I have a I have a cameo as a cab driver at the very beginning, and I had done another movie <laughs> called called Osa, which was a female road warrior movie in Mexico. We all stayed at a club med, and it starred Kelly Lynch. Wow. And so I had had, you know, limited, you know, cinematic experience. Also, I was traumatized, again, by the original Texas Chainsaw. And I was really overwhelmed. I was thinking, what, uh, you know, what is going to happen here? And I was standing in the parking lot of the Brook Hollow Motor Inn in Austin, where we were all staying. <laughs> and a car drives up and, and parks, and door opens, and out gets Jim Sedow. Right. And I just, I saw him and I just, without even thinking, I went, it's the cook. <laughs> he, goes, <laughs> he goes, hey, hey, how you doing? Hey, yeah, how's it going? I want and, to get the picture and, out now and show it to everybody. <laughs> and in that, in that moment, I completely, all of my fears generated by the original chainsaw completely evaporated because now I was a member of the family. And it really is, if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. And in that moment, I thought, wow, I am, I am, this is my family here. And I completely uh was into it that's great and, and and thanks to the bald head it was like kit carson wrote on my script um bill mosley as we knew him was gone for eight weeks thank you <laughs> thank you for making that a magical time because <laughs> wow. i was you know i so i i've never had more fun in my life well i think people who don't know or never met toby would be amazed at what a teddy bear he was. He was sweet. He was was sometimes stumbling over words and things, and was, he would give direction. I would watch him work, and well, you know, you kind of you, you do the thing where you, you know, you know, <laughs> and you would know. But yeah. he was this incredibly sweet guy who had a vision and was constantly evolving. The many times I've worked with him, and when he did the two Masters of Horror episodes with us. Each time he felt like a 25-year-old filmmaker starting, you know, with the enthusiasm and, and all of the tools of cinema that would be evolving and changing, he embraced them so deeply. And he was a true, complete filmmaker. Yeah. And he kept that up all the way through. A lot of filmmakers kind of rely on their old tricks or they have some success and they... They maintain that success by repeating what they do. But Toby was constantly <laughs> evolving. And he was just a sweet guy. Did did you see that side? I mean, I didn't see him under the pressure of the canon world. So how did he come across to you under that? To me, now that I'm the age I am and I have a son who's autistic, mm. I, I understand sort of the autism spectrum Asperger's thing. And I, I, t truly, in retrospect... 
He's a little Os- he was a little Aspergery. Mm-hmm. He was intensely visual, mm-hmm. and he was always assimilating and absorbing all kinds of little things. You know, I think with my character with Stretch, I simply felt like everything I was, and every every characteristic that I had, and every inclination that I entertained was exactly what he wanted. And I feel like in many ways he felt the same way with Bill. He saw us in a way we were kind of little wind up toys. Hmm. wind them up and watch them go. And my role was intensely physical mm-hmm. and it was very reactive. Uh, but he wanted intense reactions and big reactions. And that was not difficult for me at that time in my development as an actress because I wasn't that disciplined. Was and you had and you had a very strong throat. <laughs> yeah. Until it gave out. Yeah, Until right. it gave out. It had to have given out. Oh yeah. God. But that made for the sultry voice of stretch on the radio, right? Yeah. I, I had a story. I was uh, we were shooting we were in the radio station that was a very close, hot set. And um, I was uh, smashing poor LG's brains in with a claw hammer. Mm -hmm. And uh, the claw hammer I was using was obviously made of foam rubber. It had like a coat hanger, you know, wire in the middle of it just to give it some, you know, just to be able to keep it together. As I and I would I would bang poor LG on the head and I would say, you know, time for incoming mail (laughs) and bang him on the head. Tom Savini is kneeling off off camera, pumping away with his blood jets. And there's a, a tube that goes up through LG's hair and right up to his uh, forehead. And so each with each take, LG is sprayed with blood and I'm banging on him. And finally, we've done about, uh, now some of the takes, granted, the, you know, you know, Toby would yell cut and I would look at the hammer and it would be bent, completely bent in half. <laughs> uh, so we had to do those again. But finally, we did about 12, you know, we'd done 12 takes. Hmm. It was hot, you know, poor LG and Air Lou. And, um, you know, and finally he goes, uh, yeah, yeah, that was good. That was good, Bill. Uh, he said, uh, yeah, let, let's just do one more. <laughs> and I and I and I looked over to Tobe in, in earnest. And I said, hey, Toby, am I doing something wrong? And he said, Oh hell no, Bill. I'm just having fun watching you. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, All right, let's go. <laughs> Take what was, thirteen. What was the strangest? <laughs> what was the strangest bit of direction he gave you? Oh God, it was the it was the ice tub scene. Of course, I mm-hmm. mean it's a we started out hiring Bill Johnson, but Bill had to be brought through his paces in the audition room, and we used a piece of wood, and it was very you know Toby did not have an ability really to hide his enjoyment of things. You know, it was a thing in, that going in his eyes, and so we were practicing this in the in the casting room. I'm sitting there with my legs apart, and Bill is doing the, with a piece of wood, with a two-by-four. Instead of a chainsaw. (laughs) Instead of a chainsaw. And it was a variation on Bill's experience. So he goes, so Caroline, you know, you're, you're a little bit stimulated. You're, you're sort of, you're sort of cock teasing him is what you're doing. You're just kind of stroking him a little bit. Just, you're, you're, you're like a fluffer on a, on a, on a, on a a porn movie. But, but Bill, I want you to have a big orgasm. It was just, oh my God, what the, where are we going with this, you know? By the time we actually got into shooting the scene, you know, we needed to keep ice in the tub. It's hot. We've got to tear the the whole set down, literally tear it down at the end of the, of the scene, you know? It was a bit of a long day, but, uh, 
But it was really fun. He just loved kneading the bread. That's what he liked. Well, what's <laughs> we all need the bread. Yes. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting is Toby never set out to be a horror director, but it seemed to fit him so perfectly. I, I, I think horror films are therapeutic for audience and for filmmakers. And what about you, Bill? I mean, you've worked on both sides of the camera as well. So how do you feel about that? I, I love horror films. Um, I, you know, ever since I was a kid, I've loved them. I don't know. For some reason, there's a, there's certainly a thrill in getting scared or in scaring. And, uh, I think what it ends up doing, you know, most horror films, you know, that we grew up on, universal horror, et cetera, there, there really are morality tales. And I think that it ends up taking, you know, of course, uh, all of the, uh, you know, the, the, the frightening unknowns of life and kind of gives it a face and a motive and, uh, you know, you kind of a beginning, a middle and an end. All of that was, you know, that was what I came, I, I had in my head coming into the, my initial screening of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I, I remember it was in a, it was in a theater in the combat zone in Boston. It was 1976. Mm. It was on the tail end. It was the Paramount Theater, mm-hmm. and it, which was an old mm. theater in decay. Combat zone is kind of like the Times Square of Boston, and um, and it was on the tail end of a double bill with Enter the Dragon. Oh wow! And so Jesus. you know it was a Sunday afternoon, and there was a raucous crowd. You know, half empty theater. You know, cheering on Bruce Lee. And then when that when that movie came on, I mean, everything that I had done, I used to uh, run a horror film series in college. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know, Mr. Horror. I was always into it. And when I saw that from the opening credits, you know, from the opening, you know, tortured violin notes as they're showing the, you know, the, you know, the slow motion strobe of the melted corpse. Oh, <laughs> it was yeah. like, whoa, all of a sudden it was like it was like, you you know, we were on a different planet. You know, all of the conventions and things that I expected from a horror movie or any movie really, really went out the window. You know, I guess I don't know. It just gave me a whole new way of looking at things. I don't know if it's really I don't know how it has affected my work, you know, philosophically. But, uh, you know, I do know that, uh, you know, when I saw it, I I think the scariest part for me was Ed Neal. That's why I was was Mm -hmm. so grateful to, you know, ended up playing his twin brother, Chop Top. Uh, because I had never seen anybody sca- get a scare out of hurting himself. Right. When he, you know, cuts his own hand with a straight razor in the, you know, in the hippie van. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. You know, stuff like that is just, I mean, it's so crazy. Uh, there were so many crazy elements that, um, you know, that's why to this day, you know, in my 60s, um, oh, you know, I love, you know, I love horror. Don't movies. remind us. I, well, I'm just saying, I'm just saying that, that horror movies to me still have the greatest, you know, leeway and the greatest amplitude. Uh, that's a stupid word, but you know, they no, have, it's a perfect. Okay. Word. Yes. It's because yeah. yeah. there's a width to it that you can really tell a lot of stories. You can do a lot of, you know, political stuff. I, I think of, you know, uh, Night of the Living Dead, just the politics of that when, when it and came Texas out. And Texas Chainsaw. And Texas Chainsaw. You know, both of them. And saw it too when, when, uh, you know, cause Toby totally. and Kit, you know, were totally into dismantling the yuppies. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what they wanted to. Reaganism. Yeah. Dennis yeah. Hopper was supposed to be a stand in for Ronald Reagan. Oh. And, uh, mm-hmm. the thing that, that I found interesting, one of the things I, I, I'm going to pick up on where Bill was talking about their morality tales toby used to say to me horror is just a continuation of the western Hmm. it's a contemporary version of the western and it's good going up against evil right and it's the mythology 
of, you know, the quest to vanquish evil to, to, uh, claim the treasures of, of that victory. That's what it's about. I mean, when you look at, and for me, when I look at, uh, Devil's Rejects, Mm-hmm. I see Devil's Rejects. I also see Sam Peck and Paws, um, Straw Dogs, uh, Straw Dogs, and uh, the uh, uh, Wild Bunch. The Wild Bunch. I see Wild Bunch and yeah. Devil's Rejects as being just opposite sides sides of, of a very large coin because, and they elicited from me the very same literal, literally terror, you know. I could not watch, and to this day, I have not watched Devils of Rejects. I don't think all the way through at mm. regular speed. Really, I would cut. That's there, a great film. It, 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 it truly, um, but I, I also have to say, Wild Bunch, just the way he handled the camera, and and once again, I want to hit too. You didn't notice Toby's visuals because he didn't necessarily want you to. Right. But the insinuation of that camera work and the lighting, especially Danny Pearl's work mm-hmm. on the first one. Yeah. Um, our movie was a little flatter and once you go underground though, it becomes much more three dimensional. It does. It, it does. Once you go into the darkness and I find that really interesting, even the opening scene with the, the, uh, chainsaw on the truck and all of that stuff, it's, it's very eighties looking and it kind of candy colored and everything in the daytime after that is very candy colored. But once you go inside the radio station at night, Mm-hmm. And when you go True. into the underground lair, suddenly there's a, a richness and complexity to the visuals that that are amplified. But I, I agree with you. You don't notice because he has funneled your vision into this incredible nightmare. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that I think is so great and th- not just therapeutic, but but um, artistically expansive about horror is that totally it unleashes the subconscious. You can go into a nightmare surreal world in addition to a real world and you can go anywhere you want with it. Metaphor is rich and deep, but story, character, all of those things that make for good drama make for great horror if they are the foundation and then you go beyond. And I have to say, I find filmmakers, actors, people that live within our world, they're a lot more conflicted and they're a lot more um, challenging frequently to have relationships with on a personal level simply because by its very nature, you have to unleash your id. A lot of objectionable stuff comes out of that closet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I just, I think that's part of the reason that Toby was, he was accepted, but but also not accepted by traditional Hollywood people. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's certainly a horror gutter. I think that the genre is seen as a gutter genre by so many people in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons I feel that there's a bond between the people within the genre. Totally. Uh, a creative bond as well as a social bond that we are the underlings, we're the outcasts, and we are brought together by a mutual cause. And I think that's part of the politics of the whole thing, is we come, the vast majority of people that I know within this genre come from very working class, uh, very frequently very blue-collar backgrounds, where you have to deal with black and white a lot more often. Mm -hmm. 
circumstance alone does not allow you to equivocate and ambiguate your way <laughs> through your life. Jeez. No, seriously. No, no. I'm, yeah, it's right. And it's so right. You, you do not have the foundation of negotiation that people in the power elite ordinarily move within. They swim comfortably there. And, and you know, I come from kind of a weird contradictory in, thing in my in, in my life. But I, I felt like with Toby, part of our the bond that I we were Southerners. We were Texans. Mm-hmm. We were rugged individualists. We were completely willing to insult people and be <laughs> confrontational. And I haven't lost that. And Toby's never been a com- confrontational sort that I've seen. He's passive aggressive. Ah, okay. Gosh, I don't know what how to... Mm. The, the other thing I just noticed in the paper was um, how this is such a bad year for Hollywood. Box office is down 20%, 30%, yeah, whatever yeah. it is. And yet, the only the only movies that are making a, a good profit always. are movies like Annabelle and It. It, you know, it's going to make always. a lot of money. I'm going tonight. Yeah, Insidious. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, all these different things. You don't rely on stars unless the stars are the filmmakers themselves. You right. know, um, who know how to manipulate an audience. And that, and that's how I got that's how I got the job as Otis Driftwood because again, it was you know it was a Universal film originally. Right. And uh, before Rob pissed everybody yeah, off. Before Rob pissed everybody <laughs> off. But because he was the name, he got he got to, you know, hire me. He got to hire, uh, you know, Karen Black, although, you know, right. certainly that's, oh that's, not a, that's not a problem. She was, oh. you know, he got to hire Sid Haig. He got yeah. he got to, you know, hire his wife or, you know, his then girlfriend, now yeah. wife, Sherry. you know, and because it was that was the big name. And uh, well, you know, he puts her at the centerpiece of most of his films. He does. Yeah. yeah. He does. You know? And they have a happy, happy, happy life. <laughs> and they're very happily married. <laughs> yes, <Exactly>. they are. <laughs> um, let me tell you my first experience with Toby, yeah. because it was in a very controversial situation. I was doing publicity on Poltergeist, and a lot of people were talking about the Spielberg and, and Toby Hooper situation. This, from my perspective, it was Toby's first studio movie. Here he is on a studio lot, on a big sound stage. Steven Spielberg had written the shooting script, was on the set, and was producing. And Spielberg is a consummate filmmaker. That He lives and breathes movies. He probably has sprockets up and down his spine. Asperger's. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but no, very passionate, very intelligent, very articulate. And yes, I would see him climb on the camera and say, maybe we should push in on a two-shot here or do this or that there. And Toby would be watching. Toby was always calling action and cut. Toby had been deeply involved in all of the pre-production and everything. But Stephen is a guy who will come in and call the shots. And so you're on your first studio film, hired by Steven Spielberg, who is enthusiastically involved in this movie, are you going to say, stop that, you know, let me do this, which he did. I mean, Toby directed that movie. Steven Spielberg had a lot to do with directing Thank that movie you very too. much the, uh, for but, stating that. Well, here's, here's what happened. It happened to Bob Zemeckis, too, on Used Cars. And Kurt Russell said to, to Spielberg, I can take direction from you or I can take direction from Bob Z. I don't care who it is, but it can only be one of you. It can't be both of you. And Stephen just backed off and said, you're right. I'm sorry. Nobody did that for Toby. So that controversy still hangs there. But Toby is so much 
a crucial part of that movie. And watching both of them work on that film was a fascinating learning experience for me, who would, you know, later on become a filmmaker after doing publicity. Well, Spielberg, he always had a notorious relationship for being incredibly controlling, even about things that he was not directing. And to have had an actor of, of some substance and Craig T. Nelson is no wimp. Definitely not. Um, definitely not. <laughs> I know and people have worked with him too. I did an episode of the district with him. Ah. Um, I didn't have occasion to ask him. I, I, I want to, I, I want to go with this uh, poltergeist thing because this is a recent thing. It has come up again recently. Well, uh, had done an interview and was exultant, basically said, no, Toby did not direct poltergeist. He came right out and said it. Now he comes from a long line of very world-renowned cinematographers and DPs. Right. His, he's multi-generational in this town. He knew better than to say shit like that. Toby never had an inclination to defend himself against any of these charges. Well, it also... There's something let, me, else. let me finish what yeah, I have to ahead. say sure. first. And then, of course, the man died. Now, if Toby had been down at Cedars with a chemo bag strapped to his chest with stage four something or other, they would never have had that conversation. It would have been considered improper and insensitive. Now the man is dead and nobody can stand up for him except the people who did. And I went right at them because they said, oh, I have no words. And I said, you had plenty of goddamn words when they kicked the pins out from under one of Toby's signature achievements, and it was his. And I have to say, I thank you, I worship at your feet for attributing that movie to Toby because it's the right thing to do. Well, It wounds me, it wounded me, that they started getting all lovey-dovey about him at his death when they had done that. Well, it, I understand how people could perceive it otherwise, right. um, but... Toby was a terrific filmmaker, and I don't think it's that Stephen was controlling. I think it was Stephen was enthusiastic as a filmmaker who has celluloid running through his veins, and nobody was there to protect Toby, but all of the pre-production was done by Toby. Toby was there throughout. Toby's vision is very much realized there, and Toby got credit because he deserved that credit, including Steven Spielberg said that. And after they had not worked together for a while, he did amazing stories for Spielberg. Right. I, I was story editor mm -hmm. on the show. And then I produced another show for Spielberg. I was supervising producer of a show called The Others. And one of my jobs was to hire the directors. And I said to Steven, I really think Toby would would be perfect for this. And Steven said, you're right. He's a great director. Let's bring him in. And he kicked its ass. Yeah. So... There was not bad blood between Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg. Maybe there was for a while that I was not aware with, uh, aware of, but they came together on that. They did Taken together, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that speaks very well to him. Yes, Spielberg was very much involved. It's a Toby Hooper film, and here's two great directors, both of whose cinematic personalities are reflected in that film, mm -hmm. and I just think it's in, important to share that part. And the respect that he had for him. Yeah. Fully knowing that Toby being who he was and being where he was from. And as you had said, the trailer park perceptions that people have now and had then even more in the eighties, if you were in horror. Yeah. Um, that Toby was crashing the country club. Oh, yeah. don't let him pee in the punch bowl. I mean, yep. you know, they have that <laughs> attitude. <laughs> no, but and Toby and Toby didn't dissuade. 
because he was gruff and he and 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 he was who he was and um and the, fact the worst that, thing you can do is try to defend yourself it just opens up more for slings and arrows and i think it was a very dignified position for him to take uh and i i know it's controversial and and i wish it weren't because it takes so many people it, it takes a village to yes, make a movie and so many people's involvement and there are creative producers and there are technical producers there are business people and there are people who are involved spielberg is the consummate filmmaker Toby Hooper was a consummate filmmaker as well. And I think both of them deserve respect for their work on that movie. Mm -hmm. And both of them played a very important role in that movie. It was a profound achievement. It was. And for him. Movie, yeah. And for him to have his name on that means a lot. Absolutely. And, and let's not forget Lou Perryman. Lou, that movie. He, Lou hired Lou. He, he hired Lou. The loyalty that he showed to <laughs> Lou as well to give him something fun and vivid and bring a little Texas, bring a little Texas flavor to Poltergeist, yeah. uh, which was wonderful. That was awesome. Th there are many filmmakers who make movies, but Toby made history. goddammit. Yeah. And nobody <laughs> yeah. will ever be able to take that shit away from yeah. him. Bill, what do you think are the hallmarks of a Toby Hooper film? Well, um, first of all, it just goes farther than than uh, uh, normal, so <laughs> that's good. Um, you know, and I I love the idea that uh, you know that Caroline brought up is and that is the attention to detail. Um, I I think that uh, you know some of the images that he has, and again, it is that visual image that you know I just love watching you. Uh, <laughs> you know the the idea of you know the chicken in the birdcage, mm -hmm. uh, you know the bone furniture. Um, you know there were a lot of there were a lot of little uh, you know a lot of beautiful cinematic details like the jump cut uh, zoom uh, when uh, you know when everybody discovers the uh, the the bright red generator. Uh, on their way into the chainsaw house in the original chainsaw. You know, they see a bunch of cars underneath a camouflage, you know, some camouflage netting, and they hear this, they hear this generator, and that's what, they, in fact, the sound is what draws them to the chainsaw house, the kids, and then they see that generator, mm -hmm. and it's not just, there's the generator, but, you know, there's this incredible special jump cut up to the generator. Mm -hmm. um, the idea, you know, just, I, again, everything I, I think of, just the, uh, the, the crazy kind of sunstroke, you know, guy who, washes the van windows mm -hmm. every time Jim Cito comes back and keeps coming back. <laughs> I mean, just things like that. I, that, that I, I, I love, especially about Toby. When you think of Toby visually, what, what comes to mind? What's the vision? What, what do you see him doing? Or what's the most memorable visual you have of Toby, whether it was when you were working with him or just as a guy? You know, again, I would say that it, it does come down to those, uh, you know, to those special moments, um, you know, for me, because I because that's what really catches my attention. Uh, there was, a, you know, the uh, the kids, the, the, the two couples uh, before they go to the chainsaw house in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, they're they're looking around an old abandoned house. I guess their grandparents used to own or something. And there is and there's just a moment they look up to the ceiling and there is a moment on the corner of the ceiling where there are thousands of daddy long legs. Yes. And they're swarming. They just break apart. <laughs> and they're swarming and there's a there's actually a sound effect to it, kind of this these skittering. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like, what is that? I mean that to me is like that's that's worth, you know, you know, a thousand words, I guess. Uh you know, so that was that was the amazing part of Toby, that he was 
very soft spoken, but that he had a, you know, a child's enthusiasm for his work, that he was so visually oriented, that he loved those details. I remember him talking about um, there's a scene when we first see Dennis Hopper. He drives up, uh, you know, the yuppies car has crashed in an overpass and he drives and, and Dennis Hopper drives up and he's standing talking and or he's just looking around. And in one of the takes, apparently, as they were shooting, uh, someone drove by uh, pulling a giant blue uh, house trailer. <laughs> and uh, and the and there was a, I think it was the French editor who was who, you know, was talking to Toby and said, well, I, you know, I made sure we didn't have that in the in the shot. And Toby said, what are you talking about? So if you go That's back and you look at the movie, yeah. he, he loves that, you know, the, the trailer going by just little moments like that, that just, uh, you know, to me, that was that was his genius. Also, I remember um, years after uh, sh finishing Chainsaw 2, I, I saw Toby at a, at a party and uh and I said to him, for some reason, I just said, you know, what was what was my scratching my plate? What was that all about? And uh, and Toby looked at me and said, hell, Bill, that was your G spot. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh. I knew I was I was playing kind of like scratching poison ivy. But uh, yeah, that was my G spot. But then eating it. Yeah. 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 Oh, that was good. Yeah. The napalm crinklies. <laughs> there was also, you know, you were talking about the, uh, you know, the amazing underground lair mm -hmm. and all of the, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Christmas lighted uh, dioramas with uh, these these situations these people yeah. people that they were all skeletons and um, as it turned out those skeletons were real human skeletons mm -hmm. and they had apparently I guess they were cheaper than making them Carrie White <laughs> so Carrie White up. our our, our uh, you know. Uh, uh, production designer, <clears throat> the skeleton uh, farm. Yeah, he got he got them from I think it was either India, 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 India yeah. right? India. Yeah, yeah, and like a hundred pounds in a big crate. Oh, and uh, you know they those were real skeletons. And then there was it's that like was thirteen cents a pound well, or that, something. That started so that started the rumor that that uh, you know when people you know w would die that there was some kind of curse of chainsaw too based on uh, you know the skeletons, <laughs> the like poltergeist in the big built the subdivision <laughs> built on the grave. Right, right, right. That exactly. Thing. Well, it, surprisingly, uh, a lot more prop skeletons are real than people realize because they were <laughs> often cheaper. gotten from medical schools or the yep. sources the medical schools got them. <laughs> right. Uh, cheaper than to create new ones out of plastic. Oh, yeah. Grandma's died. Let's put her in a movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's Grandma right. always had aspirations. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There you go. She dreamed of this. Yeah, get her a SAG card. <laughs> So, Caroline, what about you? What, when you think of Toby, how would you describe Toby to someone who'd never known him? Um, my, my actual personal time with him was so rare. When we spoke last, and strangely enough, I, I spoke to him at 8 p.m. I'm assuming now it was the night he died. And I hadn't spoken to him in a couple of years. He'd had a lot of personal problems. But I would say three, maybe four years previous to that, I had a lunch date with him. I had a script that I'd written with a friend that was a horror script, and I wanted his opinion on it. And I said, do, "Can I drop it off? Do you want to read it?" He said, hey, "Oh, heck no! Let's let's get together, and have lunch. You'll read it to me." Nice. Which Whoa. was very unusual. And so we met at Art's Deli, and we sat down. And my writing partner and I were there, and we're actually we're waiting for Toby to arrive, and he's running late, which was fine. And I look down the street, and there's this small. It looks like a a big kid 
and he's got his little Dutch boy haircut, and he's shuffling down the street, and he's just looking around and thinking of things, and he's having a little conversation going on, and he's gesturing, and uh, he's feeling for something in his pocket, and uh, fidgety, you know? Mm-hmm. But he was... Uh, and who could, was that, by the way? That was Toby Hoover. Oh, yeah. That was him. Yeah, right. There's the punchline. That was him. <laughs> and that's when I had thought to myself, my God, you know? He's like my son, but just really smart, you yeah. know? Yeah. And the thing is, once he sat down and we started to talk, he he wasn't necessarily comfortable with the back and forth. Mm-hmm. You know, I asked him about uh, his son, Tony, and I asked him about his personal life, and he wasn't terribly forthcoming, but uh, he wanted to hear the script because yeah. story was everything yeah. to him. It's like you were saying Steven Spielberg had cinema, cinema, he had celluloid running through his blood. Toby was like that too. Toby had those visuals. As I would read to him, you would, it didn't, it didn't register with me that he was even listening to what I was reading. Mm. But then he would pop up with, Oh God, you know what could, you could do with the camera? You know what you set up your shot? You want, you know what you want your shot to be on that? <laughs> you wanted to be like this. Um, or, Oh God, can you imagine the music that you're going to have mm. there? You know, I mean, he would think of things that I'd never thought of. He was seeing the whole thing unfolding in his mind. Toby had a unique vision. I think he did. There, there are so many things inc- about Toby, uh, and and so knowledgeable about cinema as well, and not mm-hmm. just the genre. Um, he was a big Bertolucci fan, friends with Bertolucci, and and new new wave cinema from from France uh, from the from the sixties and was very well versed in cinema history and culture and i think he found the right genre or it found mm-hmm. him whether that's what he intended or not it gave him his freest form of expression that i can imagine for him and um jesus i miss him you know he you know? taught though he taught at the university of san marcos uh-huh. so as I a professor i did not know that yeah um, Where is that? And I, it's right outside of, I think it's, um, it's uh, uh, right, it's southwest, I think, of Austin. Uh, hmm. And, you know, that's when he made eggshells. Right. And that's when he made a couple of other little smaller independent films um, that people have, have seen the Arrow issue of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 included his early films. Right. But, They're going to screen the restored Texas Chainsaw and Eggshells at the Steve Mar- uh, at the Steve Allen Theater in Hollywood, October fourteenth. Oh my God! And so it'll be. Oh, I'll be here for that. Yeah, because and, uh, my son's birthday is October thirteenth. I'm taking him to his first red carpet for Friday the thirteenth. Wow! So I can show nice. up for that yeah, thing on the fourteenth. Be great. That'd be that'd awesome. Be- Were there. And then there was Jin, right? That was his last Jin. movie. Yeah. D-J-I-N-N. Yes, which he yes. made in Saudi Arabia. Yes. And See, I thought they had confiscated the, the print. I thought they didn't let him leave with the movie. Toby showed it to me. And there's a cut out now that is, I think it's on YouTube or it's on one of the streaming sites or something. It's a totally rescored film. It doesn't use Nicholas Pike's score. It's been recut. Toby was a little on the paranoid side. He thought they were going to kill him, that that the people, the government of Saudi Arabia, because even though they helped finance the movie and knew the movie, 
they suddenly were saying, wait, it's about a woman who wants to leave here. Nobody wants to leave here. And so um, they suddenly pulled back on it. And, and Toby felt that, uh, and maybe it was true, that he was being followed around by, by the political sources and forces within the country. And he felt like he was in danger when he was making that movie. Um, but it does exist in a, a corrupted form that's out there. But, you know, it's it, it, the movie he made was a beautifully made film. Now, where is that one? Where is that one? I don't know. He showed it to me. He had a, a one Blu-ray struck of his print and his finished film that he showed to me at my house, actually. And uh, it was really remarkable. It was very different. Did you see that? Version? Yes, yes. Yeah, I haven't did. seen it. I wonder if Tony has it. He may. He may. Because if we could actually, if that could actually be released. I think there's the a lot of trouble in that. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, were there any projects that you talked about together that he did not make? Um, you know what I wanted? Well, I was so excited by Chainsaw 2 that I uh, uh, wrote a treatment for uh, the sequel. Mm-hmm. And um, and I Chainsaw two two and Tony yeah, cha- and cha- Tony was going to be well Tony cha- Chainsaw Chainsaw three was going to be set in New York City and uh, Leatherface it it opened up with with Stretch getting off a subway downtown empty streets at night uh, New York City menacing and somebody following Stretch uh, you know and she's you know her. Her steps are quickening, and so is her, you know, the person following her. And she turns a corner, and uh, and the and the person that's you know trying to mash her turns the corner, and and all of a sudden the chainsaw and there's Leatherface, <laughs> and he saws the guy up, and uh, you know, and it turns out that Stretch and Leatherface are now an item. <laughs> they have a they have a baby they have a baby with a little mask on in a bone crib. Uh, the cook has an award winning chili restaurant downtown, very hip in Soho. Mm. That he, and he pulls, he basically gets the meat from, uh, you know, the people that live in the sewers and oh, uh, the steam pipes. The chuds. Yeah, yeah. the chuds. <laughs> the chuds. Uh, that, uh, that Leatherface works for uh, Parks and Recreation doing <laughs> sawing trees in Central Park. That is too and good. And Chop Top is a DJ. So, you know, and Toby wanted to do that? No, Toby, uh, Toby said, I don't want to work in New York. <laughs> it was like, ah. I had this. It was such a it was such a strong vision, uh, but uh, it wasn't it was no wasn't radio. No, it wasn't shared. Oh, that was, is so funny. Was there anything that you and Toby talked about doing that never never came to fruition? No, not really. You know, I will say the conversation I had with him, the last conversation I had with him, I hadn't spoken to him in two years, and uh, he had had a lot of things happen to him in his personal life that were not good for him, but I had called him to invite him to join me at a convention. That's a, essentially a gathering of the clans. It's mm. both chainsaw casts mm. in Bastrop, Texas, right outside of Austin. And wow. I called him to say, Hey, listen, you know, what, what about if you were to come to this, uh, this convention, this could be fun. I'm going in early so I can meet people and take care of business in Austin. I'm going to stay at the Driscoll hotel it's haunted. You know nice. it. You love Austin. Let's go 
tootle around and have a good time, do a convention together. He was scheduled that weekend to go back to Europe. He'd been getting some awards. He'd been traveling. He had gone back. He loved the UK. He loved this specific hotel that he loved to stay at in Mayfair. He was looking forward to going back there. And uh, we had a chance to catch up. And it was a personal conversation. It was not necessarily a work uh, conversation. But I always said to people that Toby Hooper gave me everything I have. Mm-hmm. And my life has changed very dramatically in many different ways over the last year, two, three years. And I had a chance to share all those things with Toby and thank him again mm-hmm. to let him know, you know, here I am. I'm 60 years old. What? And- <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait, what? What? Bleep. <laughs> and I said, Toby, it feels like 1986 all over again Whoa, for me. Wow. I said, yeah. things are opening up in the most amazing way. And he said, well, Caroline, you just get out there and have a great time. You earned it. Yeah. And um, Now, did you ever work again with Toby in a professional capacity? I did not. Neither did I. No. Mm. And that was something, you know, was very interesting because after uh, what a <clears throat> wonderful experience we, we all had on Chainsaw 2, uh, there was an expectation, and I guess that's baked into every actor, um, that because you've had this wonderful experience, it's going to happen again and again and again. You're going to be part of his Mercury players, his yeah. or her Mercury players. And, uh, and, it, and it never happened. And at first, I thought that that was maybe because I had done something wrong or hadn't sent a big enough Christmas card or, <laughs> you know... Gotten the name of his, you know, his pups wrong. I mean, this, I figured it was, it was me, me, me. And then I realized this as the years went by, cause I'd see him. We, you know, always had a wonderful, you know, reunion whenever we'd see each other. And I just realized that that's, you know, and having done this now for 30 years, uh, in Hollywood, that that's how some people roll. You know, either it's you, the nature of the it's beast. It's the nature of the beast. Either, you know, you know, you could work again, again and again and again, or, you know, never work again. And it's just nothing personal. You I always n- intend to. Yeah. You always sure. intend to. And just sometimes, just as, as someone on the other side of the camera doing right. that, there are people that you, you, oh, I want this person, this person, and either timing doesn't work or it's the wrong role or the wrong project. And you, nobody can take it personally on either yeah. side. I, yeah. I find it's a lot like dating. It's like you're <laughs> yeah. either a match with a director, you're not a match with a director. Yeah, but, but even when you are. But even when you are, if you've created something so terrific and chainsaw two the evidence of that is its long life and its legs and the fact that it's continually getting new fans the fans that i see at conventions or showing up at theaters or whatever and they continue to put it up on the big screen at least once or twice a year around la absolutely um you've got all these young people showing up all these college kids you know yeah even younger kids um I mean, that, that yeah. movie abides. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really does. Those characters endure so vividly for so many people. It's true. You know, Toby was scheduled to be on this show. We had worked out a date that would have been a week ago. Mm-hmm. And he, w- well, a couple of weeks ago. And he was going to make a trip to England. And he was excited about that and was a little too excited and nervous about it to can we do it when I get back, man? You know? Yeah. And, uh, of course, yeah, we'll set it up. And he went and had a great time and got an award, got an award, just had the time of his life. Yeah. And I like to think of that as the last thing that he experienced, that he had this really terrific, loving reception in the UK 
and it would have been great to celebrate him here while he was alive. And we do have an interview that we did a few years ago for the TV version of Postmortem, and we're going to play that after this conversation. And I thank you guys for joining me in this tribute to an amazing guy and an amazing artist. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for doing this, Mick, and thank you for going where very few people would go. <laughs> I mean, well, I, he yeah. was my friend, and I loved him like crazy. Yeah. yeah. So thanks. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you. Our guest is one of the most influential figures in modern horror films, Mr. Toby Hooper. Thanks for being here, Tom. Oh, Mick. Thank you, always. Uh, but it seems like your job is to dream awake, right? You know, do yeah. you... Do you have dreams? Do you have nightmares? And, and if you do, do they feed your work? Well, I really have terrible. I have awesome nightmares. And, and um, yeah, I'm sure, they, I'm sure it feeds my work. I mean, I, I had a dream, um, a dream the other night about, instead of making a horror film, creating this kind of purple blood goo that you stick in your, your head. And from that, you get the amount of horror that... Uh, uh, the recommended dosage anyone ever dare want or need. Really? <laughs> well, your dream, your movies are often very dreamlike in the way they depict the the violence and the horror. I mean, is that something that is a conscious thing that you do? I I, I think that's an effect that you, that you get from when I make a film, and we work together. You know, I continuously sand it and sand it and polish it and polish it and polish it. Because the closer to music I can make it, uh, the happier I am. I mean, so it, it's, it, 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 its effect on you is almost like music. That's interesting. Do you, do you study music? You, you, do you play an instrument? I play at instruments. You know, as you, I, I have a lot of instruments that I make sounds with. Well, I know you scored Texas Chainsaw and Eaten Alive, but they're very atonal kinds of scores. But let's let's talk about Texas Chainsaw, because aside from the music and all, it, it was a groundbreaking film in a lot of ways. Horror had been, you know, Christopher Lee coming out of uh, a coffin. And along comes the 70s. And, you know, in the wake of Night of the Living Dead in 68, all the rules changed. Uh, so where was your mindset when you created Texas Chainsaw? To, to be as irreverent, to break the rules, uh, to, uh, to be shocking and, and, and daring. Dare to do things like, uh, like um, I mean, an example is uh, uh, Sally, the girl. When she needs to get away, she'll get away. And if it means jumping through two plate glass windows at two different occasions in the film... You know, she would do that. And, uh, you know, I, I'd noticed in films, they usually they do things once. Mm -hmm. they, and I just wanted to break the rules. And amp it up. And amp it up. I mean, if that's going to happen, that's, if that's the only way out, you do it. Just the title alone, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is about as renegade as you can get. That could never have been a studio movie, even though the remake was. Was that intentional to give it a title that would really shake things up? Go for the throat? You know, go, it was definitely going for the throat. I, I mean, there was nothing. I mean, I, I wanted to see a horror film that not only was a good film, but that, that gave me my money's worth of scare. And most films didn't. I mean, they didn't even begin to know the, psych, the psychological house of cards that you have to. I mean, it's a, deli, it's a delicate thing, the planting of information. 
I mean, we know that chainsaw has something to do with cannibalism, but the word cannibalism is never used. It's only inferred. You, you can only assume that it wanted to, for the audience to be able to uh, piece the puzzle together without being told, uh, you know, under executive supervision. Now we're told, you know, make sure they understand. And God forbid they think, but make sure they understand. Well, the inmates were running the asylum here. This feels like there's no parental control over this group of people who made this movie, the normal studio situation where you have executives and you have financiers and the like. This was made very independently, and it seems like it's the only way you could have made this film. No one knew that the director did not have, could not have final cut. Mm -hmm. No cuts were asked to be made. I'd been talking to the, to, uh, the MPAA, Asking them theoretic questions like, you know, how do I get a G rating and, and hang someone, hang a girl on a meat hook? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and they would say, you can't. And then, and then finally we say, well, if you don't, if, if you think this is what you see, can you get away with that? You know, if you don't see, uh, penetration of the meat hook. So you had actually worked it out before. It was not just uh, a matter of not being able to afford uh, makeup effects that you could hang the bleeding dummy onto a meat hook, but it was that you didn't want to waste it if you couldn't put it in the film anyway. No, no, I didn't. And and, and it didn't have the money. And I actually, I, you did see blood stains on the wall from other hangings, from other meat hookings. Stains. But it tilts down her body quickly down to this wash tub. There's, you know, blood gore is not running into it. But you know, you know, you put to, you know, you put it together. You know what the tub is intended to do, and that's to keep from ruining the floor. <laughs> they were very tidy cannibals. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Well, one of the great things about Chainsaw is that it has. An incredible sense of humor. You know, it's a humor that's so black. It's what I call red humor. And even more so in Chainsaw 2, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But, you know, there's a madness to this film that could only come from an independent film and people, you actors you're not familiar with, and you don't know where these filmmakers are going to take us. And that's an incredibly powerful element of that movie. You know, and, and no one saw that like for years, like that red humor. Right. But but it, but it came out of logic. There were people doing what they would do. I mean, for instance, when when they're taking the when when they find the girl, uh, 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 Sally and Ed Neal and Jim Cito are dragging her to the front door, and he sees that Leatherface has cut the front door apart. His his reaction is 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 a real reaction. It's like, look what your brother's done to the door. <laughs> but in context with the horror that you've seen, uh, it's it's it, it is totally insane. It's the the best uh, illustration of insanity is to show normality in an insane situation. Yeah. Well, was the first chainsaw an enjoyable movie to make, or was it a real challenge? Well, it was a real challenge, and it was really, you know, was a, there's a lot of work. Was, were, did people get along? Was it uh, a, a challenging film to make in that regard? Because you were really putting people through their paces. Yeah, no, everyone hated me on that <laughs> film. I mean, they ended up really hating me and, uh, yeah. and, and one another. Well, because the, the working conditions were extraordinarily hard. The last day's shoot was like 27 hours. Mm. And, um, and you know, I was using 
technicians that were just, were just out of school had just graduated from film school. Right. So when I felt necessary, I would dive into everyone's job because I couldn't allow for take two. Right. You know, I mean, a reshoot. It had to be done right the first yeah, time, yeah. and it better be you. Yeah, and, and so... You were the most experienced person on the set. But it was that kind of thing. They were just an experience. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, I wouldn't be hated like that now, you know, with a professional crew, because that's just standard practices. But you couldn't afford a professional crew, and maybe one of the things that makes it work so well is that it does seem handmade. Right. You know, that there is an intellect behind what's going on here because the very first scene where you're hearing the narration over these documentary style beautifully composed images shows you you're in for something you're not used to in a horror film yeah i love i loved movies i loved cinema and uh and 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 and, and i felt i could call movies cinema then you know we were, even horror movies yeah yeah and why not you know we were trying new things in those days and i uh, socially as well as creatively i mean yeah. it seems like there's a huge portion of contemporary horror that was birthed during the vietnam era protests yeah. including chainsaw would you say that oh definitely was something you were trying to say e even if it wasn't deliberate it would have to come through its times because because the times were political and the times were you know, steeped in Vietnam. And we had run out of gas. That became a part of the theme. I mean, people were uh, uh, lining up two, two and three miles to the gas pump. Yeah. And there, there was rationing. But, 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 but anyway, it was, it, 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 it was a part of its time. Podcast One has a brand new app for you to discover the show. Find out everything about your favorite Podcast One shows, including Postmortem with Mick Garris, through the all-new Podcast One app, available now in the App Store or on Google Play. Find links to articles, social media, make playlists with your favorite episodes, and connect with other fans of the show. You can even create your own polls to debate your favorite horror films. We have our own little community on there. Check out exclusive content such as behind-the-scenes photos and so much more. And if you have 360 video or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality, there's over a thousand videos on the app right now. It's like you're in the studio. There is no other podcast app like this. Download the all-new Podcast One app in the App Store or on Google Play. You're listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. When you first saw it with an audience, was there a preview? Did a distributor arrange it or did you? was it still independent and looking for a home? Well, I saw it at the Cannes Film Festival. And, and it was in the director of Fortnite. It was one of, one of the films. And, um, and that's the first audience I, that I saw it with. Wow. I made the film and it took three days to sell it. But, that, but seeing that with the audience for the first time, did you suddenly feel like, wow, they get it? Uh, they, they reacted. And they re and they re but but they didn't react to the red humor. Right, that was that they were just so shocked with it. So for them, it was pure horror. There was no humor to it. it, it not for five or six years. Really? Yeah. How did you feel? Did you expect after there? Were you? I did. Disappointed? Yeah, I was. <laughs> I, I was to the extent that um, in Chainsaw Two, I I, I I gave you enough of it to notice. <laughs> Yeah. Chainsaw 2 is one of the most wonderfully 
entertainingly grotesque movies I've ever seen. <laughs> and I mean, body is meat. The body is not a temple in that movie. The body is carnage and carne. Um, and it just seemed like you must have had the best time and hard to keep a straight face during some of those sequences. Oh, that, it, well, it, it, it definitely. Yeah. Well, was horror your first choice as a filmmaker? Well, I, I came from making documentaries, but that was only... Moving from a documentary on Peter, Paul, and Mary to Texas Chainsaw Massacre is quite a jump. <laughs> and that was, of course, a very political film, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and what, everything they were about was political. Mm -hmm. And then I made a film called Eggshells, and, uh, and it was about the time troops were coming back from Vietnam. And you've just restored this film, right? Yes, yes. And so we'll finally get a chance to see it. Yes. And, uh, but anyway, that, that film got so few play dates right. that, that I, uh, uh, a friend of mine suggested that I do a horror film. Well, with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, suddenly you went from an obscure filmmaker who had made documentaries and this film, Eggshells, that had played a few college dates and the like, to a guy who sold his movie at the Cannes Film Festival, was the toast of the town. Everybody was interested in being in business with you. What happened next? I developed for like three or four years. Uh, Warner Brothers had Salem's Lot, and I was attached to Salem's Lot several times, but it took like four years. And it was going to be a movie. Originally. It was going to be a movie with, um, that, that uh, Friedkin was going to produce. And, well, you know, with Stephen... That's a very heavy, a very heavy uh, piece of work. And so to get a two, you know, a hundred, a hundred page script out of that particular work, it would, it, it just wasn't possible. So finally it went to Warner's television and became a four hour miniseries. And the irony of it is the rest of the world, it was cut down to a hundred minute feature film. It, it was, it's, it's, it, it, it in no way plays as well as the, uh, the, the four hour version. No. They, I mean, what was surprising about that was you were a feature film director, feature film horror director, shooting something for television, which in the 70s was incredibly rare. Most horror on television was just done by the typical TV directors who had no particular love or fondness for the genre. It was just their next job. And you could see it reflected, that scene outside the boy's bedroom where his uh, brother is outside and the roiling smoke and it's all shot in reverse is the work of a filmmaker and not a hack. To, 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 to the producer, uh, uh, Richard Kobritz, uh, chose me and, and um, uh, for that reason. I mean, he wanted, uh, he wanted Salem's Lot to be as much as it could be. He wanted to scare people, and he didn't want that, that very thing that you were talking about, where they would just say, action and cut, and let's get home. <laughs> well, you, after, after Chainsaw, though, you did uh, another independent feature, Eaten Alive. Billy Friedkin brought you into a deal at Universal, but first Eaten Alive happened. How did that come about? Someone called me and said, um, you know, we, we, we want to make this film, would you come direct it? And, and just an and, offer, and was this the first time that had ever happened to Yeah, you? yeah, it was the first yeah. time. And, and so, I, so I came out, and it was a kind of a, not that pleasant an experience. There was a, there was a lot more... Um, uh, producers buzzing in my ear, mm -hmm. but I got to cast who I wanted, 
and I and and did that turn into blessing or curse? I hear Neville Brand is not the easiest guy to was not the easiest guy well, to work with uh, because it, it, he'd been drinking a lot. Yeah, and um, and so uh, so we, we 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 got a nurse and he started running on the beach, but his consciousness kind of slowly came back. And uh, two weeks into shooting, uh, Neville said, uh, "Well, I, I, I'm here." <laughs> Two he, weeks. He, he was like all yellow. My God, I, I'm surprised he can walk in here. Yeah. But he, he said, I know this guy. And, and, he, and he kept saying it until I knew that he, he, he was the guy. He just kept forgetting. <laughs> yeah, he, he, no, he, he remembered everything. And, oh, good. But he just didn't re- He just thought it was real. That's all. <laughs> I, I, I mean, that's what it looked like to me. And he was always trying to get over what he called his Neville Brand thing. And I don't know exactly what that was. <laughs> but he must have, yeah. He must have. Well, well, you had a lot of interference from producers and financiers and the like, which must have been an interesting introduction to when you finally did move into the studio situation uh, with uh, the Funhouse. Was that something that Friedkin brought you into? Uh, no, that was a, um, a man named Derek Power. Mm-hmm. And it was a script that, that I had a chance to work on and, and embellish. And I really wanted to do it because I, I, I was a fan of Nightmare Alley. Yeah. And, uh, and I'd always wanted to do a carnival film. And so I had truly freakish anomaly animals, sideshows. And uh, I saw recently and realized, well, even Nightmare Alley didn't have the kind of carnival I had. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I shot it in, in Miami because that's the winter the campground for the carnivals that used to, you know, roam across this country. Right. It was technically difficult mm-hmm. because to get, you know, hundreds of people going in Ferris wheels and machines. Time it out and, and all, all the movement out. and all the choreography. There was one, there's one shot in that movie. Actually, it's like, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a scene that's done in one shot and it's dollies in on the couple hiding or they're, they're, they're talking behind a tent. And there's this um, kind of octopus ride close by, and you see the lights flash through mm-hmm. frame in the background. And um, it just kept kept rolling and pulling back. And I was reslating, and then and I would talk to the actors, and then we'd do it again. And anyway, it was we we started feeling raindrops hit us, but there you know there were no. I looked up, there's stars, there. <laughs> and then and then I heard this. You know this grinding of this this octopus gondola machine, where there was a spinning gondola inside, a spinning arm, and another spinning, uh, and looked up against the moonlight, and there was a spray of effluvia oh. coming coming from the machine, <laughs> and I could hear I could I could hear sounds of real anguish, and and and, and, and please, you know please stop the ride. <laughs> And and you know the first AD had forgotten to you know stop stop the thing between between takes between takes. Could I mean, no one was you know they were they were sick, but they. Were, <laughs> but it could have been worse. But yeah, it could have been worse. So, what about traveling? Did you find your films would be perceived differently in different uh, areas of the world? I imagine Japan would have responded quite uh, vociferously to uh, Texas Chainsaw. They did. They 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 they, they loved Chainsaw. 
That's great. You know, it was it, it, it was all a learning. It was all about learning. It was all about uh, as much disappointment, I think, yeah. as, as anything else. Here at Podcast One, we love hearing from you. We read every tweet and comment you send our way. So don't miss your chance to take our summer listener survey. Just go to podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. Or go to podcastone.com slash my survey. It only takes a few minutes, and it gives you the opportunity to make a direct impact on your favorite shows. Tell us how you really feel so we can get to know you better. We value your thoughts and participation. So check out the survey at podcastone.com slash my survey. Or click on the survey banner on podcast one.com now more post-mortem with mick garris then you moved on to steven spielberg embraced your talents and brought you in to do poltergeist and that had to be an interesting experience and that's where we met actually i was doing publicity on poltergeist while you were shooting that's right you were the only recognizable face (laughs) except for beatrice Strait. (laughs) you know known you from the z channel Here's the movie star. Yeah, right. I mean, you were, you know. <laughs> well, and here I am 30 years later doing the same thing. But um, it was so amazing to me to see a guy who had made a name for himself doing this real go-for-the-throat horror, independent horror movie, being embraced by the studio system that is allergic to that kind of film. And yet... Here comes Steven Spielberg, the most powerful guy uh, at the time, embracing you and your talent and trusting you to partner with him to make this movie. Steven loved Chainsaw. Yeah. Well, it's obvious. It's obvious. uh, That was a technical experience. Well, you were there. You saw. I mean, we had spinning rooms. Yeah, I watched that. That was amazing. Yeah, that was. An entire set of a room that would be on a, a, a sort of turning gurney so that everything got sucked into the closet. And, and, with, and, and then pulled one be- the little girl's bedroom out and put, put the parents' bedroom in for Joe Beth to go up the wall. Right, right. On the ceiling. And there was a luxury to that, though. It was, uh, it was the first, um, uh, like, 90-day schedule. Wow, it, 90 it, days yeah. for one movie. One of, the, one of the most fun scenes that I had, uh, the most fun I had in that was make, doing one one shot that is more like a magic trick than a special effect. And it's where the, the chairs stack up on the table. Oh, yeah. To, to so get, how'd you do it? Oh, okay, well, it, it uh, okay, so... Camera's so on the chair, kitchen table. Everybody's on, there. Right, okay, so Joe Beth picks Heather up and, and puts her on a part of the kitchen sink. And the chairs are spread out right. around the, the table. And then she goes over to get the 409 bottle. And so there is a, a pre-constructed stack of chairs with two guys, two, two special effects men, right beside the camera. And then there were six other effects people waiting in closets underneath the counter and so started shooting and it took four seconds for everyone to pull the chairs out run into other rooms so two guys come out and put the the assemble stack on the table and then make a dash out the back way it's a misdirection classic magician's trick so you pan off of that you go with her whoop go back and then come back and everything's all in place without a cut and dailies um it sounded like a cattle stamp (laughs) You know, I mean, it was like, you know, turn the sound down because it... Now, you must have learned a lot from the studio experience and from the Spielberg experience. Oh, I learned a lot 
by. I, I learned everything I knew about special effects or everything. I mean, that was my introduction into ILM. Yeah. And, and also just a look and a, a behavior and the characters that, that go along with a film like this that is, that is a, a mainstream film that is measured mm-hmm. than, than I was used to. You were used uh, to screaming, to yeah. gentle middle-class family taken, the Norman Rockwell household taken to hell. And, 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 and they're seeing that it's real mm-hmm. and that it's really, and of course it's undeniably real when we hear the girl's voice come out of the TV. You have had experiences of your own with the other side, with ghosts, right? Well, yes, actually I have. Yeah, anything yes. you want to share? Yeah, well, I I I, I experienced a um, a poltergeist. Um, what happened? Well, this was shortly after my dad passed away, uh, like two weeks, something like that. But the but, but but the classic situation of water glasses exploding in the kitchen, and 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 you know, and plates, things you know from Carl's Bad Cavern, things like that, and I could hear them crash in the night. And there would be in a pile in the middle of the room, so they had somehow propelled themselves away from the walls. But but the uh, doors opening, uh, my mother hearing his rocking chair all night, and my hearing it, and she thought it was me, and I thought it was her. Uh-huh. And um, I don't know. I, it, it seemed like poltergeist activity. Mm-hmm. Then then I leased a house. Uh, not too long ago, like um, oh, 10 years ago or so. Um, and moving into the house, uh, my son saw a man. He can't describe what the man looks like, but but he ran and my son chased him thinking it was a, a you know, someone. Prowler, huh? And he went into the other room where the, it was a cold room and there was nothing there. And then I was running to, to answer the, the front door. I left the bedroom and ran down a hall and went around a corner and I walked through a, a shadow. I didn't see it until I was in it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I saw this outline in my peripheral vision. And then I invited friends over. Yeah, come see the ghost. And, and they saw it. I don't know. I mean, I experienced these things. Mm-hmm. Did it scare you? Uh, no, it didn't. Would you like to see a ghost? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I would pay to see a ghost. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, I didn't feel fear, but I did. I did get creeped. I did get he- the heavy creeps. What does scare you? What uh, in movies or theory? Well, the thing that really scares me now is uh, the state of affairs mm. in the world. Um. Well, there's something I don't want to talk about on the show because it's something that you and I are working on. Okay. That is yep. is the scariest thing. It's the real things right, that can right. happen. Well, let's talk about the tools of filmmaking and how they've changed over the years. It used to be that a low-budget independent horror film was scruffy and gritty and it was whatever you could get your hands on. But the tools now of uh, digital filmmaking have become so accessible and affordable that you can do so much more uh, on your Mac. Yeah. How do you think that has opened up the world of storytelling? It should open the world of storytelling. I think I think there should be more uh, more storytelling. You, you know, I, I understand. I understand we live in a uh, 
a world of, of uh, watching a movie and texting at the same time. Right. You know, and, and Transformers is a kind of film that seems to transcend. <laughs> it's made for barrier. texting. <laughs> it, it is, yeah. I mean, and it's so fast that if you miss one gag, it's okay because in two seconds there will be one that's even bigger. Yeah. And, um, but I think we can still get back to story that's right, needed. So, so it's not about the big effects so much, not about the explosions around the house, but the people who live in the house. Yeah, and there's really no reason that we can't cheat, a, a, you know, backdoor some good storytelling into this new world and age of technology that I love, by the way. I'm, I'm not putting down... Uh, technology or CGI or digital filmmaking. But there's always it's been... A miracle. There, there have always been technological breakthroughs in, in making films, but it always comes back to the story being told. That story sitting around the campfire being told is what captivates us, not the whiz-bang. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about something you have some experience with, sequels and remakes. Uh, you did the sequel to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, which I think is a masterpiece, one of the great sequels, especially in the horror genre of all time. Your name is on the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I don't know how involved you were in that. Just the whole idea of, uh, should we do it? Well, it's being done, and um, and I think we should get beyond it. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it seems lazy. Yeah, well... Well, you know, I, I, I think perhaps one of us should uh, uh, um, rewrite Great Expectations. <laughs> you know, I mean, That's that would right. be... And so, I, so I, I don't know, I just think we're going through, through something that at, at some point, now and again, something will get through that remake uh, thing. There's a, there's a lot of material out there. A lot of material and a lot of platforms, which brings up one other thing I'd love to touch on. You've done a lot of work in theatrical films as well as extensive work in television from Salem's Lot on. You did The Others, you did Masters of Horror, you did Tales from the Crypt, all of these things uh, in between the movies you've done. Is there a different approach to you? Well, certainly not between a theatrical motion picture and Masters of Horror. Uh, that, 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 in fact, uh, the two Masters of Horror uh, I did... It was like 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 making chainsaw. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm 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 very proud of that work. They're great and, films. And that was a great experience. You made it a great that. experience. Uh, you know, I, we've worked on several different shows at the same time and apart from Freddy's Nightmares onwards, yeah. and and it's just always been so much fun because usually we'll be back to back. The others was you did one of the best episodes of The Others, which is a fantastic plane crash ghost story once again. And is it the tale of ghosts that draws you most in the, in the genre? I don't know. That, that It seems to come to me. I don't know that, you know, I don't know if it's the tail wagging the dog or, you know, and these things seem to hunt me down. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, I don't know. That's a gen an incredible generality. No, but it's a good one. Uh, if, if you were given your choice, uh, someone came up to you and said, take your choice of any genre here. You've got a budget for whatever you want to do. You can do an opera. You can do a play. You can do a Western. You can do a thriller. You can do, uh, you know, a period romantic drama. What would you like to try? Oh, 
of course I would want to do um, something that I haven't done. Yeah. But, you know, I don't think that would be expected. But that's the whole idea. What would you most like to try? Would it be well, a Western? No, I, no, it would, would not be a Western. It, it may be something like, uh, like, like, like Dickens, like uh, Dr. Zivago. Uh, that, that would be a wonderful, a wonderful uh, area. To, to, to go into. I'd love to see what you do with that. I thought I would love that. <laughs> well, thanks so much for sharing your time with us on Postmortem. Toby Hooper. Thank you, Meg. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.